Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Christian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. Matthew A. Lapine, author of the new book, The Logic of the Body, Retrieving Theological Psychology, just published in the summer of 2020 by Lexham Press. Matt is the Pastor of Theological Development at Cornerstone Church and Lecturer at Salt School of Theology in Ames, Iowa. And I'm so excited to have Matt joining us. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. The Logic of the Body is a study of the relationship between body and mind, emotions, and intellect from the Christian theological tradition. It explores the study of how a more integrated approach to mind and body in medieval philosophy was was flattened by some, some Renaissance and Reformation theology. It concludes with a constructive model for a contemporary theological psychology. So Matt, I'm super excited to get into your book, The Logic of the Body. But first, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So um, like I said, I'm, I'm in Ames, Iowa, Cornerstone Church. Um, uh, I, I just finished up a degree under uh, Kevin Van Hooser. And so this book is actually just the published uh, results of, of my dissertation. Um, but the, the sort of journey to the books started with me um, uh, actually around the time that I got married. Um, so my wife at the time was, or my fiance at the time was uh, dealing with obsessive compulsive disorder. And so um, what I come from a, a background, a theological background where um, uh, biblical counseling is is the way to go when it comes to dealing with uh, mental health issues. And so basically that is uh, using the Bible alone um, to, to approach, um, you know, therapeutic as a therapeutic resource. And um, what happened during that time is I realized that a lot of the things that I had been taught (laughs) to to do or say were profoundly unhelpful. And so um, Hmm. this, this book sort of came out of, out of questions that arose, you know, 16 years ago. Um, but my intellectual journey was basically, I mean, I, I studied, uh, um, I did a master's of divinity first. Um, and then I went and, and, uh, did a couple more years studying philosophy, um, just because I had a lot of questions and, and this was sort of the culmination coming together of different areas. I had read a lot in psychology, read a lot in philosophy, and, um, then also had theological interests. And I was trying to actually solve the problems that, that I had, um, and answer questions that I had. Um, and so I was just really grateful that Trinity afforded me a, a space to do that. Um, I remember <laughs> the first time uh, I talked to Van Hooser about this project. Um, he, you know, he, he was, he was like, uh, I, I, well, I'll just say it took him probably a year to figure out what I was doing. Um, which is <laughs> not, which is not a great feeling when you're, you know, trying to propose your topic, but, um, you know, it's definitely interdisciplinary. Um, and, uh, you know, he was flexible enough to, to allow me to attempt it. So, um, yeah, I was, I'm just really grateful. That's great, Matt. Well, uh, early on in the book, you describe this important concept that you're going to assess and, and you call this concept emotional voluntarism. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what is this, uh, what is this idea and, and how do you see the problems that it's creating before we start getting into some of the historical solutions that you you've you've retrieved Mm -hmm. yeah so you know among um a study on emotion there's there's something like a split although maybe it's coming together a little bit more um you know uh in psychological literature but 
there's the cognitive view and um, then then there's the psychological view, which is um, uh, like a feelings oriented view that uh, uh, emotions are feelings of bodily changes. That's William James. And so, um, you know, at least in the last 40 years, theologians have generally uh, aligned themselves with the cognitive view. So emotions can be expressed in sort of propositional form. So emotions are mental state that have sort of a propositional form to them. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about that is if that really is what emotions are, then it seems like it should be relatively easy to alter our emotions just by sort of adopting new ideas or shifting our attention in some way. And so a lot of pastors and theologians have uh, assumed that when we have emotions that are explicitly commanded, you know, like do not be anxious, um, that we should be, we should be able to, within a relatively short period of time to sort of change our emotional states by addressing ourselves directly. So talking to ourselves or preaching to ourselves, um, with new sort of cognitive, um, assessments of our situation. And, um, you know, I'll be the first to say that that could be helpful, but it's uh, an incomplete picture of what emotion is. And so um, yeah. emotional voluntarism is just the idea that emotions are mental states. They should be changeable and you have a duty to do so as quickly as possible um, based on sort of how the Bible commands emotion. And I'm trying to sort of shift from that to a more robust way of looking at emotions that sees them as bodily involved. So the metaphor I'm, I like to use is that are our emotions are a bit like a garden and, and, you know, our bodies need to be cultivated and it may, you know, actually take time and, um, and not just the words, but also the experiences that we, um, that we have with God and with our world and with others uh, to really shape our emotions. So I'm trying to, you know, especially stretch out that expectation of what it takes and, and nuance the expectation of what it takes to change our emotions. Hmm, that's fascinating. From the initial naming of the of the concept that you're addressing, this emotional voluntarism, you, you move into a historical survey, a historical study where you're trying to look at other ways that theologians and philosophers have understood the relationship of of the mind and the body and the emotions. And the first place that you really spend a lot of time is with Thomas Aquinas. You, you talk about some of his own what we now think of as outdated understandings of medicine. But nevertheless, you, you find even if his science seems dated, he actually offers some, some more helpful alternatives. So, so talk a little bit about Aquinas and, and how he saw the body relating with the mind. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned medicine. It's, it's fascinating to me that, um, you know, Galenism uh, as a medical theory went from, you know, before the time of Christ until, you know, like the yeah. 19th century. Um, we, we seem to have completely forgotten what Galenism is, although, you know, even the, I think that there's still people um, <clears throat> in the world today who have a generally Galenist uh, uh, approach to medicine. I mean, there's there's some traditional medicine traditions that continue um, in sort of the broad Hippocr- uh, Hippocratical vein. But um, for those who maybe aren't familiar yeah. with Galenism, What's generally behind that idea? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, Galenism is uh, it basically you're talking about a view that incorporates humors and spirits into explaining mm-hmm. how the body works. And so, the humors. Um, I, let me make sure that I can get all these right. There's uh, 
um, melancholy or black bile. There's cholera which, or yellow bile. There's, um, let's see, blood and uh, what's the fourth one now? You know what? You'll have to look it up. I, I'm blank <laughs> yeah. on that. But anyway, the, the point is each of those humors have different qualities to them. Um, and so that some are, uh, you know, one is cold and wet and one is cold and dry and hot and uh, wet and hot and dry. And so, um, you know, a, a well-tempered person, that word is from the same word for temperature that we have. A well-tempered person is someone who has appropriate levels of heat and dryness and cold and wetness in their body. And so this is sort of the theory that was behind bleeding, right? Is that mm -hmm. if you were bleeding someone, they're too hot and wet, for instance, it's too much blood. Um, but uh, then what accomplished the, the, the things in our body were these different types of spirits. You had vital, vital spirits or animal spirits, which moved you. And then you had uh, psychic spirits, which accomplished your brain functions. But I mean, um, what's wild is, I mean, like I'm a, I'm a big British literature fan, for instance. And, um, you know, so I like Anthony Trollope and, you know, um, um, uh, you know, Jane Austen and, you know, all these, uh, but anyway, that, the, what's wild is when you read them, the theories are still there. Like um, it's, it's relatively recently, but the reason I bring up the time span is because, um, you know, this theory is factually incorrect about the body, but mm -hmm. formally in terms of its ability to capture um, human experience, it was actually a really good theory. <laughs> hmm. um, it wouldn't have lasted so long if it didn't like, communicate something about how the body actually works. I mean, people wouldn't, it wouldn't have been plausible. And so um, when I say it was a, it's a good theory, you could just point out the fact that a lot of times we still use this with the same metaphors for how we talk about our feelings now. Like when yeah. someone gets anger, you could angry, you say they get heated. And just like with heat, something that's extremely hot, it takes time to dissipate. And so what I'm saying is that's the sort of thing that sort of heat metaphor actually is a good metaphor for our emotion. Like your body is in some sense, um, you know, uh, uh, there's a, there's a sort of arousal, uh, that's going on in your body. Um, yeah. and so my point, uh, with even bringing up Galenism is I was astounded by how medically integrated Thomas Aquinas's psychology was. Hmm. Um, so the big question for me kind of going back was, um, I thought that, you know, what was missing from our discussion about emotion was character, like the possibility of forming virtue. And uh, I'm a huge Aristotle guy. And so I was like, you know what, Aquinas might be a good place to start from here. But um, the, the interaction between virtue and embodiment and, um, and psychology was all so well developed in Aquinas. And uh, so the story I'm telling in the historical section is basically how did we go from having a really well-developed uh, psychology in Aquinas to a very, very simple um, and reductionistic uh, psychology by the time of the Reformation. And so that's the story that I'm trying to tell. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I thought was so helpful in your discussion of Aquinas, you, you distinguish how because of Aquinas's integration of his understanding of medicine and kind of theology of or, or psychology even. Um, so there, there's this understanding that there is the need to govern emotions, but you talk about the difference between a political versus despotic governance. Um, can you, can you tease that out a little bit for us? Yeah. So uh, that, yeah, that's, that's great. Cause Aquinas will say we have higher and lower powers. So um, there's actually three levels of powers. There's powers that 
I have no conscious control over like, you know, my, the digestion of my food. Um, but there's a middle level, which he calls the, um, the sensitive powers. And, uh, this is, this is perception and this is our emotions or passions. Okay. And then, um, the middle layer is actually sort of quasi or half voluntary, um, because we have some control over it, but not total control. Whereas what I'm thinking or what I'm choosing, I have control over, um, in, unless sort of I'm in a really irrational state. Um, so the point is, how does our reason and will govern our middle powers? Um, and his, his metaphor is, uh, it's not like a despot. It's not, we, we can't just in any given moment, just say, no, you're going to feel that, not this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, uh, uh, it's almost when he says it's political, when he says it's political rule, it's almost like he's br- bringing a sort of dual agency to the human person. Like mm-hmm. it, it's the way that a, a politician would convince someone who is part of the populace. And so uh, for Aquinas, that means that um, our reason actually does supply ideas, but you know, sometimes those ideas are not going to sort of make an immediate difference uh, right now, but they will sort of inform us as we move forward perhaps. Um, and our will uh, can sometimes sort of just say, no, I'm going to act contrary to my emotions here. But then our will also is sort of orienting us in a broad sense uh, by sort of setting our values in our long-term values and also sort of making the choices that will um, impact our experience. And so there's a sort of ongoing training that's happening sort of top down, mm. but it's not like sort of immediate, like our emotions must always obey. Um, we all know what this is like in experience. I mean, I, I you know, if you cut out sugar for six months, um, you would have a lot uh, more capacity not to eat the donut that's in front of you. But, you know, if you're a sugar, sugar addict in that moment, it's going to be hard for you to make that choice. Fascinating. Well, Matt, so then after, after your discussion of Aquinas, you, you really trace how there's this, this, um, the shift that begins to happen so that by the time you get to Calvin's writing, as Calvin now picks up to talk about the role of the emotions, he's answering entirely different questions. And so, so he's not wholesale rejecting Aquinas, but the, the, the conversation has changed and we're in a much more dualistic kind of frame. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, so, you know, um, there's a, there's an article, um, I'm blanking on his first name right here, but, uh, there's an article by a guy named Frost in the Trinity journal where he says that, uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics was the real cause of the reformation or the real sort of target for it. Um, <laughs> wow. and, uh, Richard Mueller, followed up in the next episode saying, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously siding with Richard Mueller on this in the sense that I, I'm saying, look, it's not as though um, these notions, Thomistic virtue uh, were rejected. They, the conversation had just shifted. Um, so specifically, there are a lot of controversies over the immortality of the soul and how that's possible. Um, if you, uh, um, you know, if you don't have a more dualistic uh, account of, of body and soul. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the powers that the soul has began to become simplified until it was basically just intellect and will that Calvin was dealing with as powers of the soul. 
Yeah. Um, so you're, you're basically gradually moving towards a Cartesian view of body and soul. It, like it didn't happen just overnight with Descartes. It was something that was brewing in academic uh, uh, disputes. Um, I'm trying to remember the, the other uh, aspect to this question, but um, so yeah, I'm, I'm telling that story. Oh, and then the other thing that was changing was also, um, um, you know, just questions of, um, of, uh, divine freedom and human freedom. Um, right. And so, um, you know, th- those are just questions that uh, like, um, how does, how does a person choose and how does, uh, how does, uh, God's, um, uh, character, um, uh, um, uh, sort of factor into to the way that the world goes and, and how that relates to human choice. And so, yeah, the questions had absolutely shifted. Uh, virtue is no longer a huge topic. Uh, and part of the reason for that is because when you um, eliminate that sort of middle ground that needs to be governed by habits, um, yeah. will, the, the principal power of will is freedom. And so it doesn't actually make sense why you would need virtue if what the will is, is essentially free. Um, to, virtue is a sort of habit which characteristically disposes you to choose a certain way. And so if the most essential thing about the will is uh, that it's free, uh, virtue doesn't make much sense within that conversation. So there's, there's a number of different threads that kind of come together uh, to produce the context of the Reformation. But the, um, the interesting thing is, I you know, I'd actually like to go beyond because I, I know you're a John Owen scholar, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that like post-Reformation reform theology um, is, uh, you know, I, I think much more engaged with Aristotle and and Aquinas than than you know Calvin is, for instance. And so um, that that that's something sort of that I'd love to look forward to is. I think that there is a sort of re-engagement, especially on the issue of, of uh, vir- virtue, maybe especially infused virtue. Um, but I also think that the body-soul d- debates actually never, um, like, uh, I think that there, there remains a sort of more rigid dualism. And so the, the I, I, I'd be interested to sort of continue to research how the conversation changes after the Reformation. One of the things that you you really insightfully put your finger on um, in in Calvin's psychology is that it's almost as though, and tell me if I'm getting this right, that he's so concerned with um, keeping the body out of responsibility for sinning um, for for different kind of moral reasons that you you note that the flip side is that now the body can have no real meaningful impact in in virtue or in righteousness is is that right yeah i th- i think so i mean i think that um calvin uh you know the doctrine of total depravity is about that um you you were depraved in every part of us it's not that we're as bad as we can be right but so it was important to calvin and the reformers to say no actually um, our minds and wills are touched by sin um, because that, that's a way of saying these are like sin is volitional. It's, it's, it's uh, coming from us. It's not just corruption of our body. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, uh, the, 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 the attempt was to communicate that no uh, sin is like we are culpable for sin. And so 
it's a very strong emphasis on sin being in the will and, and intellect. But um, I think by sort of exculpating the body, perhaps unintentionally, there is an equal yeah. and opposite reaction mm-hmm. in the doctrine of sanctification. So now the body's just made sort of irrelevant to the whole uh, spiritual question. And so part of what I'm doing in the latter part of the, part of the book is to say, no, actually um, embodiment and our connection with the, the earth and the land, mm-hmm. you know, is actually at the center of what God's doing in the whole of scripture. And so you can't just cut out the body from sanctification and you can't cut out the body from the doctrine of sin. These things are deeply intertwined in a holistic um, view of the person. How, how does the Calvinist uh, dualism of psychology, the, the relationship between body and, and mind, intellect, how does this continue to develop into modern reformed theology and, and its approach to psychology? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I'm um, I'm skipping uh, a big chunk because <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm I'm sort of picking up, honestly, um, right uh, right after uh, Wilhelm Wundt uh, established the first psychological laboratory. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, you know. There's a there's a big gap in there that I wanted to tell the story, but you know it was already 440 pages long. But uh, uh, um, and my wife, you know, she she needs a reprieve from all this. But um, yeah, so when it when it comes to the modern uh, time period, um, what I what I think that I found was largely there's still a a pretty simple psychology. Um, you know, you have like beginning with Hodge, there's still a strong sense of faculty psychology, um, but there's, there's uh, um, still that dualism uh, present um, at that time. And it seems like what's happening once you get in, once modern psychology becomes its own discipline is that theologians are a bit shy from digging as deep into theology or psychology as they would have been previously. So, Psychology was always just part of philosophy. Um, it's yeah. psychology, the study of the soul. And so the body-soul relation, the powers, the virtue, vice, all of these things are, were a big part of psychology. But then psychology became a modern discipline. And so, I mean, like a guy like Herman Bavinck is really interesting on this because he's written two books on psychology. Um, neither of them have been published in English um, because it's sort of, it seems like something that's sort of off the beaten path for theology, but actually... Yeah. He was very concerned with it. Um, but, you know, Bavink is interesting because he's actually engaging um, uh, modern psychology of his time um, and uh, engaging it in kind of uh, a Thomistic way. Um, so uh, I really sort of look to him as, as an example of someone who didn't shy away, but, but who actually wanted to take these topics uh, seriously. But on the whole, there's been there's been a general move towards holism more recently yeah. in reformed psychology, but without much specification as to what that might look like. Um, there's not been much talk about the powers of the soul or virtue and vice within uh, reformed psychology. Hmm. So in the, the latter part of your book, you've, you've kind of moved from your, your historical retrieval into some constructive proposals. Um, there's so much that we could get into, but maybe just give us just a good overview of from your investigation of, of Aquinas, the way that he had a more integrated approach and, and then tracing the dualism or the simplification that emerges. What do you 
propose is uh, is a helpful way forward for how theological psychology can can translate what we know from the, you know the scientific literature and all, and also the biblical data. Yeah. So, you know, my two the two core contributions that I think I'm trying to make are one a more holistic way of looking at human persons. So, if you split body and soul, you can sort of split sin and illness, right? And I'm saying no. Sin and illness are deeply intertwined. Um, our experiential wounds and our sin, sinful inclinations are just tied so close together, it's hard to separate them, uh, psychologically speaking. Uh, the other contribution is a tiered psychology, which um, is basically saying there's a difference between our choices and our thoughts and what's automatically happening in our perceptions so or unconscious way of engaging the world and uh, the ways that that sort of feeds automatically to our emotional states. So when you have when you have a clear distinction between those two levels, you can actually begin to 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 tease out well how do I actually address my emotions um, in in a holistic way? You know, so it, it may be um, you know thoughts and choices, but it also may be um, embodiment, like you know, giving or receiving a hug or you know yeah. uh, any all the, the the there's a wide spectrum of stuff here, and I and I get I mean I've I've done some work on trauma too. So I, you know, we could get into that, but, um, but so those are the two core contributions, more holistic and a sort of tiered psychology. Um, but, but the, uh, the way that I'm doing this is book of nature, book of scripture. And so, um, that's right. Uh, book of scripture, basically I'm trying to show that God is concerned with physical things all throughout scripture. Um, and then I'm giving a sort of rereading of, um, Matthew six, which is sensitive to, to uh, the context of the kingdom and the already not yet and the way that our bodies are sort of groaning along with creation, uh, awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And so I, I'm concerned about an over-realized psychology. What, what I mean by that is that there's yeah. the term, there's a term over-realized eschatology. It's like um, when, when you have an over-realized eschatology, you say the blessings that, that um, you know, are promised by God, um, that we will enjoy are all for here and now. And so I think some people, when they sort of say, well, look, you shouldn't be struggling with anxiety. They're, they're saying, they're, they're saying something that's unrealistic to the way that our bodies are sort of groaning in the here and now. And this gets to uh, Romans chapter eight, especially that there's still suffering and we're, we're still groaning um, and we're awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And so I don't want people to sort of import future promises into here and now with, with regard to psychological expectations. So that's sort of the biblical stuff. Um, the, the book of nature stuff, um, you know, I, first I'm dealing with, um, you know, current discussions about um, uh, non-reductive physicalism. Uh, so Nancy Murphy's right. um, view. And I just think you have to be a dualistic whole, uh, holist. And I, I'm not going to get into all the, the arguments, but, um, you know, I think there's, yeah, the the the, Thomas, the Thomistic view that our soul is responsible for life, uh, not just for our thinking, is really important to that chapter. So, um, um, anyway, but but the other one, is, which is I think more near and dear to me, is uh, the psychological chapter. So I'm dealing with um, uh, neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux's uh, account of emotion, which I think is actually groundbreaking. Um, it's, it's only recently been published, but he's basically saying, I'm going to say it in sort of, uh, academic lingo and then try and explain it. But he's saying our general cortical networks are actually 
processing our, our automatic thoughts that are underlying our emotions. What that means is um, many psychologists will say, look, your emotions are sort of your, your primitive responses, yeah. but they don't, they don't bring in a complex web of ideas. They're, they're sort of, um, you know, it's like, it's like fear reacting to a snape shaped object on the, on the ground. It's just sort of an evolutionary uh, inheritance. But Badu is saying, no, actually your emotions are quite complex and they're bringing information from your whole cortex, um, including information about yourself. Uh, and I think that's really important because our unconscious thoughts are not dumb. Um, I, I'll g- just give you one example. Uh, I was walking out of um, the grocery store uh, the other day and uh, I looked to the right and panicked. And the reason I panicked is because I uh, typically would always park in the same parking spot. It's on the far side of the lot, so no one would park there, but it's the first spot. So it's just mm-hmm. a convenient sort of spot that everybody ignored. Um, uh, to this, this particular day, I didn't park there. I parked right in front because there was a spot there. And I knew if you had asked me before I walked at the door, hey, where did you park? I knew where I parked. It wasn't yeah. that I, I was deceived. But when I came out, my body reacted because where I typically parked, there was a green van parked with the driver's door open. And so even in spite of the fact that I knew that wasn't my van, my body reacted as if that was my van and set me into a panic. Because just a moment later, I I was like, no, I didn't park there. Um, And, you know, my fear dissipated. But think of all the things that unconsciously happened uh, right there. Um, My my, I'm saying my body, but what I mean is sort of my unconscious lower processing. Uh, yeah. My body knew that uh, what a van was, it knew what a possession was, it knew what things that I valued, uh, what it meant possibly to have the door open. I mean, there's a lot of th- unconscious judgments that I never thought, but that yeah. triggered an emotional reaction in me right away. So the reason I think that's so important is when we understand the complexity of that dual process sort of lower level, um, it really, really can help us um, to assess our emotions correctly. There, there are things to sort of dig for um, in our emotions um, that uh, will help us to gain some some greater self-understanding, which is, I mean, this is the core of why people go to therapy um, because yeah. they've got characteristic re- emotional responses that they don't quite understand. And we're constantly looking for explanations from our emotional responses. And sometimes we're really bad at saying why we feel what we feel. And so this chapter, I think, is really important because it it demonstrates how our unconscious and our body sort of come together as a team to produce our emotional states and and, and what we can do about it. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So, Matt, throughout the book, you keep coming back to this idea of plasticity. Could you tell us how you're using that term and, and what it means to have plastic emotions? And maybe as we start to wrap up our talk about your book, who do you think, uh, who do you hope might read this book? Who might benefit from your study of theological psychology? Yeah. So, yeah, plasticity, I'm using it in a slightly uh, non traditional way because neuroplasticity generally refers to our capacity to form new neural pathways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and even in, even in uh, like physics, plasticity refers to um, the capacity to be bent into new, to take new shape, right? But uh, for me, I, I'm including, in addition to that, also the capacity to, to maintain that new shape. So there's uh, plasticity is the ability to be molded and to, and to take that and to maintain that shape. And uh, so 
what I think plasticity is, is the, it's the core um, sort of capacity or quality of the human person for forming habits. Yeah. So if I start, you know, to work out and my body starts to take a new shape, um, it's possible to do that because I can take a new shape and then I can hold that shape as a habit, you know? Um, uh, so anyway, uh, I think that that's really important and, and hopeful for people yeah. who are in, um, a really uh, maybe a very depressed state or an anxious state because there's possibility that maybe it's not overnight, but maybe over the next four years, you can sort of gradually and slowly move towards, towards health. Um, and I think that, that, that the idea that you can stop it right now sort of short circuits the, the, the shape that you're in right now, that you have yeah. to acknowledge that this is going to take a while, you know? And so a lot of people sort of, um, they don't know why they're not getting better. And, and part of it is that they have unrealistic expectations about how fast this should happen. And they don't celebrate the sort of small wins that accumulate um, over time. So, you know, I wrote this, um, you know, I wrote this to get a PhD for one thing, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, it's interesting the reaction that I've had. Cause you know, like I've had, I've had uh, you know, um, mothers in Iowa who have read it and have loved it. Um, uh-huh. but you know, it's a very hard book to read. So, um, you know, it's not really for, you know, a, a stay at home mom in, in Southern Iowa. Um, but it's, it's almost like the people who know profound mental health difficulties and, and yeah. trauma, they get what it's trying to do and, and they, they latch onto it, even in spite of the difficulty. But what I'm really hoping is I'm really hoping that it reinvigorates a conversation among theologians because, Mm -hmm. um, so I'd like it if theologians would read it, but sometimes it almost seems like, um, you know, the theologians who, who, um, there's a, maybe I'll, I want to be fair in how I say this, but maybe there's a, a, the ratio of, uh, you know, theologians, um, oftentimes theologians don't have the, the, the sort of right experience to appreciate why I'm writing this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you do a PhD, oftentimes you've been in a virtuous spiral in your life, which means you had early success, you gained confidence, you, I mean, and you, you know, things kind of build. Um, and so, you know, maybe there's a higher percentage of these people that haven't you know, really dealt with severe trauma or depression or things like that. And it seems like that sort of experience is a prerequisite for appreciating what, what I'm doing here. Um, but I, I really would like to sort of be a bridge to sort of open up um, and, and really push theologians to, to try and really answer questions that maybe they're not as, uh, not as familiar with. So um, my, my hope would be though, uh, you know, this is sort of, um, in some ways, getting past the, the gatekeepers and, and trying to uh, get get a, a, a sort of foothold within the theological conversation. But my hope is that I can write something that's more accessible, um, that's more immediately helpful for, for church people and pastors. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your, being so generous with your time to talk with us about your new book, The Logic of the Body. Would you be willing to share with us what you're working on now? Uh, what I'm working on immediately is I'm, I'm writing a, a new program for our church. So it's been, the last year has been a bit slow, but um, yeah. I have already been in talks with a publisher about a popular version of this. And so um, 
I think it's likely that that will be my ne- next next problem. But um, you know, it, as far as academic projects down the road, I'm you know as, as I'm sort of digging into what emotion involves. Like a major part of emotion is um, is our sense of of others and how they see us and how we see them and all this. Um, and so um, I'd really like to work on a project on shame at some point in time that that is you know biblical theological but also sort of um, pays attention to to what's going on psychologically and, and socially. So um, those are the two things that are sort of on the radar. Excellent, Matt. Very much looking forward to reading all of that once it's ready for print. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Matthew A. Lapine, author of The Logic of the Body: Retrieving Theological Psychology. Available now from Lexham Press. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to New Books and Christian Studies. Visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com where you can find more information about all of the authors and books that we feature on our podcasts. That's it for now, and I hope you have a great day. (laughs) 